At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my new series, Parish. My character, Gray Parish, was a getaway driver. I'm retired from life. You know that. He's in a world over his head. Tell me about this driver job. And he's asked to start to figure things out. I did what you told me to. He will try to do what's right and seek justice. Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeart3D Audio. For full exposure, listen with headphones. No experience, no job. I could do that job, but who'd give me the chance? Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. We don't ask for experience. We give it. You won't read it in a book. You live it. Pick a service. Pick a challenge. Set yourself apart. Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. What a great place. It's a great place to start. I'm Toby Ball, and this is Strange Arrivals. Episode 2, This is Unreal. Picture yourself as a young airman on RAF Bentwaters, one of the twin air bases bordered by Rendlesham Forest. It's late December 1980. You and more than 10,000 other Americans are divided between these two bases on the North Sea coast, 70 miles northeast of London. Due east, about 150 miles across the water, are The Hague and Amsterdam. Jimmy Carter is in his last days as president. The struggle for human rights overrides all differences of color or nation or language. Leonid Brezhnev is still in the Kremlin. In terms of world events in late 1980, of course, the big thing hanging over at least the United States would have been the Iran hostage crisis, that that's still going on. And nobody knows how it's going to end. I'm Kirk Dorsey. I'm a chair of the history department at the University of New Hampshire, and I specialize in U.S. foreign policy and U.S. environmental history. Reagan had just been elected, and so he had run this campaign on the United States being far weaker than the Soviet Union, being vulnerable to Soviet expansion. It could happen at any point. And therefore, we are the only ones that can preserve the peace. And to do that, we must have strength. In 1980, 
It was not clear when or how the Cold War would end. The Soviets had invaded Afghanistan the previous year. In late December 1979, in their greatest show of force since the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia, they airlifted thousands of soldiers into the Kabul area and moved tens of thousands more overland across the border into northern Afghanistan. It seemed as though they had gained an upper hand on the world stage. What would happen if they made an aggressive move in Europe? How would the U.S. respond? If you were at Bentwaters or Woodbridge, this was not an idle question. You were on the front lines. This is our legacy of failure in the 1970s into 1980. And of course, Britain also was now under Margaret Thatcher's control as prime minister, and she had very similar rhetoric about ramping up the Cold War in good versus evil. It is fashionable for some commentators to speak of the two superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union, as though they were somehow of equal worth and equal significance. Mr. Speaker, that is a travesty of the truth. The Soviet Union has never concealed its real aim. In the words of Mr. Brezhnev, the total triumph of all socialism all over the world is inevitable. For this triumph, we shall struggle with no lack of effort. Indeed, there has been no lack of effort. So I think that on that base in December 1980, they would have been hearing a lot of rhetoric about this new, more intense Cold War that the Soviets might come across Europe. It was the height of the Cold War, so tensions were high. This is Jim Penniston again. In 1980, he was a sergeant in the U.S. Air Force and was one of the witnesses to the first night of the Rendlesham Forest encounter. Looming over any conflict during the Cold War was the knowledge that the U.S. and the Soviet Union had nuclear arsenals adequate to annihilate each other. This led to a U.S. doctrine of mutually assured destruction, that knowing the devastation that would result in retaliation would prevent each side from launching a nuclear strike. The acronym, of course, is MAD. We had uh, nuclear weapons that were stored at Bentwaters. I can say this today. We also had five uh, squadrons of A-10 tank killer aircraft. And their mission was to go ahead and deploy during the first few days of the imaginary war and go to forward operating locations in Germany. Elhorn, Leipine, Holm, a few others. We had a different type of terrorist threat at the time. We had groups like the RA, Black September, Bottermeinhof Group, Red Brigade, those type groups. And our perimeter was always either being observed or tested while we were there. Mainly it's because that we were about three miles from Felixstowe and Lowestoft. They were two ports right on the North Sea where we frequently had Russian trawlers and stuff like that go there. So the situation was tense, and things that we look back on through the comfortable lens of history, the release of the hostages in the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the disintegration of left-wing terrorist groups in Europe, all were uncertain, and at this base, would have held potential for real trouble. 
It's in this atmosphere that Airman First Class John Burroughs, another witness to the encounter on the first night, went back to base. It was the morning of December 27th, 24 hours after that initial encounter. Got up on the desk before the night shift was relieved. When I went in there, the uh, desk sergeant said, oh, there's, there's a guy that was chasing UFOs in the woods the night before. The desk sergeant was talking about Burroughs and Penniston, of course, but then he added something. You're not gonna believe this. We had an incident last night. What he told me was the shift commander I had an interaction with some kind of a blue light that went through her vehicle, shut it down, and ended up getting relieved of duty because it shook her up so much. So that was night two. The incident that Burroughs refers to here involves Lieutenant Bonnie Tamplin. There doesn't seem to be any documentation, and her account mostly comes to us second or third hand. But briefly, the story is that there was a report of lights that Tamplin and probably another person went to investigate. During the investigation, as Burroughs said, a blue light of some sort entered their vehicle and shut off the engine and radio. What happened to Bonnie Tamplin, the lieutenant that was on the second night? She disappeared from the base immediately. This is Chuck Halt, who at the time was a lieutenant colonel and the deputy base commander. He's not implying, by the way, that she was abducted by aliens or anything like that. She was transferred. I tried to track her down, and I was told finally she was in Italy. I have found her, but she will not respond. I know where she lives. I know her address, but she does not want any involvement. They scared the you-know-what out of her. And this is the extent of what happened on the second night. For us, it mostly serves as a bridge between the events of the first night and the events of the third night, to which Chuck Halt would be an important witness. On the third night, there was a social function at the base, an award ceremony. My name's Nick Pope, and I worked for the British government for 21 years at the Ministry of Defense. For much of the early 90s, Pope's duties included researching and investigating the UFO phenomenon and determining if it posed a threat to the United Kingdom or if it was of any defense or scientific interest. He was in the desert when I spoke with him and cell coverage was not great. So I apologize for the quality of the audio. Anyway, Chuck Halt was at the ceremony and his night was interrupted by a report. The senior base commanders were there and the doors burst open and junior officer went up, saluted and said, sir, it's back. And, and um, one of the officers, deputy base commander, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt said, what are you talking about? What's back? And the young officer said, the UFO, sir, it's, it's come back. The third consecutive night with a UFO sighting. Well, Holt and one of the other senior commanders conferred and decided someone had better go and deal with this and see what, what was going on. So Colonel Holt drew the short straw, really, threw together a team of about half a dozen people and went out into the forest, in his own words, to debunk this UFO nonsense. The small group Halt assembled included an on-duty airman named Morgan Nevels. And I knew he had a camera and he'd done some work for the photo lab and he was a pretty good photographer. 
I said, have him meet me at the disaster preparedness office in about 30 minutes, and we'll go out and take see what this is all about. So I went home and changed. Master Sergeant Ball came by in a Jeep with several people in it, driven by a lieutenant, uh, England, who was the on-duty cop. We went down to disaster repairs. We had to wait for Neville's because his wife was at the uh, Catholic women's program at the chapel. He was babysitting. He finally showed up, and I said, I want you to bring your camera and pick a Geiger counter. And the only reason I said those two things is because I wanted to document there was nothing there. While this was going on, John Burroughs, one of the witnesses to the encounter on the first night, was on base, talking with friends. I went over to the dorm and talked to some of the guys I worked with, and we decided to go out there. Me and a couple other guys went out into the forest and ended up with meeting up with Colonel Hall on night three. So two groups entered the forest, one determined to find nothing, and the other hoping for a repeat of the sighting 48 hours before. One of these groups was not ready for what was about to happen. Strange arrivals will return in a moment. Awards Watch says Liam Neeson is at his best. Don't miss In the Land of Saints and Sinners. Having left his dark past behind, retired hitman Finbar Murphy, played by Neeson, leads a quiet life in a remote coastal Irish town. But when a menacing crew of terrorists arrive, Finbar is drawn into a vicious game of cat and mouse, forcing him to choose between exposing his secret identity or defending his friends and neighbors. In the Land of Saints and Sinners, from Samuel Goldwyn Films and Sony Pictures Home Entertainment. Watch it now on digital. Rated R. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. On the night of December 28, 1980, two separate groups headed into Rendlesham Forest. The first, more or less official group, was led by Deputy Base Commander Chuck Halt, who made it clear that the base didn't, at the time, take the sighting very seriously. The second group was John Burroughs and his two friends, hoping to catch a glimpse of what Burroughs had seen on the first night. Chuck Halt. So we went out into the forest, and I was shown a site where something had supposedly landed the first night. There were three indentations, eight or ten feet apart, and we definitely got radiation readings there, both on the ground, higher in the center of the triangular formed by the three objects, and the tree sides toward the landing site had higher readings, all more the background, but not enough to be dangerous. 
Halt made an audio recording to document anything that happened to them that night. It is the one real-time document of the events over these three nights. To preserve battery power, he turned the recorder on when there was something that needed to be documented and off when there wasn't. This is from the cassette tape made that night. The first voice you hear is Colonel Halt's. The second is Lieutenant England. And the third is Morgan Neville's. Hey, I see it too. What is it? We don't know, sir. So, yeah, can I get some of Yeah, it's a strange, small red light. Looks to be out maybe a quarter to half mile, maybe further out. Let's switch off. The light is gone now. It was approximately 120 degrees from the site. Is it back again? Yes, sir. Oh, that's flashlight, sir. Let's move out to the edge of the clearing so I can get a better look at it. See if you can get the star scope on it. The light's still there, and all the binary animals have gotten quiet now. Yeah, we're heading about 110 to 120 degrees from the site. I'm through to the clearing now, still getting a reading on the meter. About two clicks. So Halt and his companion saw a light in the distance that disappeared and then reappeared. They turned off their flashlights and found a better vantage point at the edge of a clearing. They looked through a star scope, night vision goggles, to try to get a better view. At this point, Burroughs' group joined up with Halt's. We met up with them. Halt kind of uh, told me what was going on, showed me some blue lights in the sky that were flying around. And then all of a sudden in the distance, an orangish hue type of light or whatever started coming towards us. He asked me if that's what I dealt with the first night, and it, it looked like it, but it was farther away. While we were there trying to figure out what to do, we saw a small, I say basketball size, maybe a little larger beach ball size, glowing orange object directly out of the forest toward the farmer's field. There's a farmer's field to the east of us and a farmhouse. The object was out in the field, it was glowing, equivalent of dripping molten metal or sparks were coming off it. We watched it for several minutes and just said, let's get close to it. As we started to, the object moved into the forest in front of us, between us and the farmer's house. It moved horizontally, bumping up and down through the trees. Again, from Halt's tape. It's coming this way. It is definitely coming this way. Pieces of it are shooting off. There is no doubt about it. This is weird. To the left. Yeah, definitely to the left. Two, two lights. Two one right to the front, okay. one right to the left. Keep the flashlights off. There's something very, very strange. Get the headset on. See if it gets any stronger. Okay. This is from my interview with Chuck Halt. The object was obviously under intelligent control or had some kind of sensors to avoid things. As we got close, it moved back out into the field between us and the farmer's house. At that time, I could see the windows in the farmer's house glowing bright reflection. Oh, my, it looked like the house was on fire. I was kind of concerned about, you know, an issue for the people in the house. On Halt's tape, you can hear as they walk to the edge of the woods, flashlights off, to get closer to the object. Halt thinks it looks like a winking eye, and when he looks at it through the starscope, it seems to have a hollow center. And when the light is flashing right at them, it almost burns his eyes. Okay. This is we're falling off it again. But it just moved to the right. Yeah. Left to the right. Strange. Oh, we're right to the left. 
to the edge of the woods up there. Do you want to do a lot of lights? Let's do it carefully. Come on. Okay, we're looking at the thing. We're probably about two to three hundred yards away. It looks like an eye winking at you. It's still moving from side to side. And when you put the star scope on it, it, it sort of has a hollow center, a dark center. It's, it's yeah, like a pupil of an eye looking at you and winking. And the flash is so bright to the star scope that uh, it almost burns your eye. Burroughs asked Halt for permission to move closer to the object. I wanted to see what it was anyway. We were trying to figure out what was going on, just like everybody else, because it just didn't make sense. Halt okayed Burroughs and another Air Force cop to proceed. We started running towards it. As we got closer, he went to the ground. I kept going. I remember getting close to it, and then the next thing I know, it was gone. But he said that I went into it and I disappeared for a while, and then he saw me come back. In the course of interviewing Rendlesham witnesses and researchers, I was not able to find the person accompanying Burroughs during this event. No one else mentioned anything about Burroughs being taken up to the craft. Throughout the Rendlesham case, there are a number of situations like this where one witness's account is not corroborated by the others. Again, Deputy Base Commander Chuck Halt. The object suddenly, silently exploded like fireworks into five white glowing objects, and they disappeared. So we went out into the field looking for traces of whatever was coming off the object, and the only thing we find evidence of was that there had been cows there, you know, cow pies. So while we're milling around looking, we noticed three objects to the north in the sky, multicolor objects, moving together in synchronization as though they're doing a grid search or some type of formation flying. Really bizarre. 305, we see strange uh, strobe-like flashes to the uh, rather sporadic, but there's definitely something, uh, some kind of phenomenal. 305, at about uh, 10 degrees horizon, uh, directly north, we've got two strange objects, uh, half-moon shape, dancing about with colored lights on them. But uh, gets to be about five to ten miles out, maybe less. The half moons have now turned into full circles. As though there was an eclipse or something there for a minute or two. So here they are seeing colored lights that are some distance away from them, starting off shaped as half moons and then appearing to become circular. Zero three fifteen. Now we've got an object about ten degrees directly south, ten degrees off the horizon. And the ones in the north are moving. What's moving away from us? The lights are moving away from them now. Moving out fast. Yeah, they're both heading north. Okay, here, here he comes from the south. He's coming toward us now. Now we're observing what appears to be a beam coming down to the ground. Here, Halt says that he sees a light beam coming down from the craft to the ground. This will be important later. This is unreal. Uh, 244, we're at the far side of the farmer's, the second farmer's field, and made sighting again about 110 degrees. This looks like it's clear off to the coast. It's right on the horizon. Moves about a bit and flashes from time to time. Still steady or red in color. Halt uses radio to call the command post to see if they had anything on radar. They reported back to him that they did not. This report would be disputed later. But at the time, the response he received was that there was nothing unusual on radar. Uh, 
we decide to go a little further out to get a better view. And we see objects to the south, glowing white objects. One of the objects comes overhead at very high speed, probably two or three high thousand feet in elevation, stops above us and sends down a laser-like beam at our feet, about 10 feet away. The beam is about, oh, 10, 15, 20 feet in diameter. I'm sitting there, standing there rather, wondering, what is that? Is it a weapon? Is it a communication? Some kind of warning? And just as suddenly as the beam appeared, clicked and disappeared. The group kept moving. Halt had his radio on. He says he could hear people at the weapons storage area who were looking at the objects through binoculars and that they were reporting that the objects were triangular and that there was a larger object that had sparks coming off of it. But despite all of this that Halt described, there still seems to be little interest from the base. And they can hear the people in the weapon storage area saying the objects we saw in the sky were actually triangular. And they can see a equivalent of what we would call a mothership with small objects coming off it with sparks or whatever emanating from them. Again, you get the sense that no one at the base was taking this very seriously. We were out there for several hours watching this. Nobody seemed to get excited. The command post didn't seem to care too much. So finally, we were wet and tired and cold. The temperature was somewhere here freezing. The wind was blowing off the coast. So we packed it in and went home. I, I didn't know what else to do. I'd expected somebody to come out and respond with me. Burroughs leaves the story here. Over the next few days, he would return to base and write the document we heard from earlier describing his experiences on the first night. Halt's night, however, was not over. So I showered and cleaned up because it was, I was wet and dirty. Couldn't sleep, so I went into the office. And my boss, Colonel Williams, met me on the steps. He said, that was some night you had, because he had monitored my radio conversations. And I said, yeah, I made a tape recording of it. Colonel Williams asked for the tape, and Halt reluctantly handed it over. This was Sunday. There was a meeting of top staff on the coming Wednesday, and the colonel said that he would play the tape at that meeting. Halt was horrified. I said, oh my God, there's the end of my career. I waited all week, and of course, when he came back Wednesday after lunch, I was waiting at the door, and the first thing I said to him is, hey boss, do I have a job? Am I still gonna be here? He laughed and threw me the tape. I said, well, what do we do? He said, uh, well, I played the tape for the general and the staff, and the general said, well, anybody on the staff have comments? Nobody said anything. In his infinite wisdom, he said, well, it happened off the base. It's a British affair. Case closed. So I said, that mean the end of it? And he said, no, you get with Squadron Leader Moreland, who was the liaison from the RAF at the base, and uh, see what he wants to do. So I had to wait about 10 or 12 days because Tom Morton was in Wales at his family home for the whole Christmas holidays. So when he came back, I briefed him and played the tape, and he didn't know what to do either. So about two weeks passed between Halt's UFO encounter and his meeting with the squad leader, Don Moreland, a Royal Air Force representative at the bases. In this meeting, Halt was to tell the British authorities about the three nights of the encounters. David Clark has interviewed many of the people involved in the Rendlesham encounters, 
including Don Moreland. I'm David Clark. I'm an associate professor at um, Sheffield Hallam University in the UK, and my specialist subject is folklore. This is how Donald put it to me when I interviewed him. Chuck Holt invited me into my office and said, oh, by the way, while you've been on holiday, um, Don, the, the aliens landed. But I thought I'd wait until you came back off holiday to tell you about it. And he thought, he's, he's pulling my leg. This is a joke. And then he came out with all this fantastic story about wizards and bangs and lights flying around in the forest. As you would imagine, Don Moreland was unsure what to do about this. He told Halt that if they gave an official account of these sightings, it would lead to a big inquiry. So Moreland suggested that Halt write it down in a memo. And he actually did that almost as like an experiment because he didn't think that Halt would actually commit this to writing. He said, put it down in writing, I'll send it to the Ministry of Defence. And he didn't think he would take the bait. And lo and behold, he did. He produced that one page, and that's now gone down in history. He made a lot of phone calls, and I don't know what all else. And he finally says, give me a memo to talk from. So I wrote the infamous memo. It was never supposed to go anywhere. It was supposed to be a document for him to read and then talk from. You can easily find the Halt memo on the internet, It's just one page with three numbered paragraphs and is signed at the bottom. The first paragraph is a brief account of Penniston, Burroughs, and Cabansag's encounter on the first night. It puts the time at 3 a.m., so it's consistent with Burroughs' timing, not Penniston's. It also describes a craft. Quote, The object was described as being metallic in appearance and triangular in shape approximately two to three meters across the base and approximately two meters high. This is based on Penniston's account, which we will look at in a later episode. The second paragraph relates the field investigation undertaken the next day and reports that depressions were seen in the ground. The following night, as we heard earlier, moderate radiation readings were recorded. The third paragraph summarizes Halt's encounter later that night. But the memo gets the dates wrong. The first night is identified as December 27th, and the last as December 29th. As we will see in the next episode, this mistake complicated efforts to verify information. There's also no mention of Lieutenant Bonnie Tamplin's encounter of the second night. Moreland sent the memo up the chain of command to the Ministry of Defense. And we waited and waited and waited and nothing happened. Uh, I was relieved, to be very honest with you. And that was, I thought, the end of it. Until two or three years later, whenever the memo got released, and then it hit the fans. Next time on Strange Arrivals. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This episode was written and hosted by Toby Ball and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Josh Thane with executive producers Alex Williams, Matt Frederick, and Aaron Mankey. Special thanks to our voice actors, Joe McCormick and Jeff Williams. Learn more about the show over at GrimAndMild.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, Visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, 
or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Awards Watch says Liam Neeson is at his best. Don't miss In the Land of Saints and Sinners. Having left his dark past behind, retired hitman Finbar Murphy, played by Neeson, leads a quiet life in a remote coastal Irish town. But when a menacing crew of terrorists arrive, Finbar is drawn into a vicious game of cat and mouse, forcing him to choose between exposing his secret identity or defending his friends and neighbors. In the Land of Saints and Sinners, from Samuel Goldwyn Films and Sony Pictures Home Entertainment. Watch it now on digital. Rated R.